welcome again in a new surprise episode of Searching for the Slavic Soul. My name is Magda Lewandowska and I am your Polish born and bred presenter. I finally managed to get myself a break from working through the pandemic and as a way of resting and recharging, I am catching up on the podcast. Because, you know, this is what Polish obsessed with the Slavic culture chicks do on holiday. Not that I holiday anywhere fancy, mind you. I stay at home and relax by doing what I like the most. So by searching for the Slavic soul, literally, at least today, literally. Because today's episode is based on a post published on the Vitya's blog somewhere last year. A post in which we were trying to figure out when exactly a Slavic soul is born. When does it start to exist? For those of you who follow Vitya's blog, the topic I'll be talking about today is already known, so feel free to not to listen or to listen. It's entirely up to you. The inspiration for contemplating the origin and time of appearance of the Slavic soul came to me when I followed a Facebook discussion about Slavic souls, a discussion which was focused on when the Slavic soul or a soul in general, when it develops. As it usually happens with this sort of discussions, in a space of a few comments, the topic branched off towards abortion, pro-life movements and family planning and Again, as it usually happens, the gist of some of the comments indicated that at least some of the commentators, apparently self-proclaimed pagans, remained under a more or less conscious influence of Judeo-Christian ideas. And those influences is what we, the Vitias Project and the Searching for the Slavic Soul podcast, is what we are finding and eliminating in order to find the truly pagan, the truly pre-Christian Slavic ideas, philosophy, beliefs and, well, the Slavic native faith. Before we start with the soul, a compulsory disclaimer. When I talk about the ancestors, I mean the pre-Christian Slavs, the people who created the original Slavic faith, philosophy and lifestyle. Also, most of the statistical data I will be citing today came from the WHO website. I did not make them up. Apparently, as I'm told, there is a way of put some links in the podcast notes, so I'm going to try and do that to give some credibility to my contemplations. But in case I fail to find the option of adding the links, please just visit the WHO website and check the data yourself. Or you can visit our blog and find the post this episode is based on and find the data there. The blog, as pretty much everything Vitia related, can be found on our website, which is witia.squarespace.com. After this introduction, It's time to roll with the topic. Before we start to discuss the Slavic soul, we have got to get a few facts straight. The first undeniable fact is that the pre-Christian Slavs did not have microscopes. So (laughs) they really didn't. So they didn't have the foggiest clue about sperm, egg cell, 
fertilization, embryo, and all this scientific knowledge. Pre-Christian Slavs lived in early medieval ages. Let's say, you know, we're talking like the 10th century of the common era and before. And the first microscope was built at the turn of the 16th and 17th century. Thanks to these early microscopes in 1677, a Dutch guy called Van Leeuwenhoek observed sperm. So these little tadpole-like cells, he observed it in human ejaculate. The female reproductive cells and the hormonal cycle remained a mystery for another 300 years until the beginning of the 20th century. The second undeniable fact is the fact that in the initial period of the development of human embryo, a microscope is absolutely necessary to see the embryo and find it and distinguish it from the menstrual blood to, for example, diagnose a miscarriage. Because opposite to what some pro-life campaigners say, an embryo is not a miniature baby with, you know, fingers and toes and little eyes and a cute little face. Around the seventh week of the pregnancy, the human embryo is approximately one centimeter long, so this is like just a little bit under half an inch, and it really looks nothing like a baby. If I manage to add the links to the podcast's notes, I will link up a picture of a seven weeks old human embryo, but if I fail my struggles with the technology, you can just Google it. So, a seven weeks old human embryo is a tiny, and it looks like, um, I don't know, like a blob with a tail. Uh, If miscarriage happens at this stage of pregnancy, it's pretty much impossible to see the embryo with a naked eye. And if you are really, really determined to find it, you have to sieve off the menstrual discharge. And to be honest, who would even get an idea to do it? (laughs) And why? I mean, So considering the two undeniable facts, I think we can all agree that our ancestors did not have a clue about the existence of human embryo. And because of that, they could not possibly have advocated protecting it from any harm or abortion from the moment of fertilization. So basically, if anyone claims that Slavic native faith protects unborn life from the moment of fertilization, claiming that this is what our ancestors believed in, well, this person is bonkers and has got no idea where he or she, although sadly, most of the time it's a he, they have no idea what they basically are talking about. So we have established that our ancestors didn't know what an embryo is and therefore could not possibly get an idea to protect it. So the next question is, did they know about the existence or development of a human fetus? And for those who don't know the difference, an embryo is the first stage of development of any multicellular organism. It starts with a zygote, so it's the cell that develops after the egg cell is fertilized by a sperm cell. In humans, an embryo starts to be called a fetus around the ninth week of pregnancy. A fetus in the ninth week of pregnancy has a heartbeat, it has budding fingers and toes, it's around an inch long, but still has a bit of a tail. 
But the question is, regardless of how a fetus looks at the ninth week of pregnancy, the question is, have our ancestors known, were they aware of the existence of a human fetus in the ninth week of pregnancy? We know that our ancestors were not farmers, not only farmers, they also were hunters. And now, after killing an animal, like all hunters do, they must have removed the animal's insides, like guts and all the internal organs. And if they killed a pregnant female, they could have noticed the pregnant uterus, even if the animal's pregnancy was not obvious before the gutting. So, probably some Slavs, drawing an analogy from the killed animals, could consider the possibility of the human pregnancy developing before it became visible. But I am 100% sure that nobody could possibly have come up with an idea to gut a woman to rule in or out her pregnancy. That just <laughs> wasn't an option back then. So, <laughs> so maybe some Slavs some early medieval Slavs could suspect that pregnancy starts before it's visible, but they had no way of confirming this suspicion. There's just no way. The early symptoms of pregnancy, for example, morning sickness or breast enlargement or lack of period, they are not exclusively symptoms of pregnancy. Let's not forget pre-Christian Slavs did not have refrigerators, supermarkets, veterinary services monitoring the quality of meat and other animal products. They did not have food banks or international help in the time of famine. They did not have the modern medicine, reference laboratories or ultrasound. Malnutrition, food poisoning, ovarian tumors or even polycystic ovaries, as well as a number of other diseases could cause a lack of period or delayed period or vomiting or breast swelling or you know big tummy or moodiness or change in taste of food preferences. This is why the only way to definitively confirm pregnancy in a woman living in ancient or medieval times was to see gradual enlargement of the tummy which ended with a labor and giving birth to a child. Unless a woman gave birth to a child, there was really no way to say what was growing in her tummy. It could have been a child, or it could have been a tumor, or accumulation of fluid, or a demon. Our ancestors had no way of saying. Of course, some women just know that they are pregnant. Before they even get the early symptoms, they, they just know. But we don't discuss the woman's view of her own pregnancy, but the Slavs, the you know, society view on it. Therefore, we will hold on to the statement that the earliest a pregnancy could be suspected by a bystander is around 18th or 20th week of pregnancy, when the tummy starts to get visibly bigger. At this stage, the fetus is 22 to 25 centimeters long. It does resemble a human, and can most certainly be easily noticed if it's miscarried. The ancient and medieval Slavs did not have any specialized tests to detect pregnancy. 
Therefore, it can be said with certainty that between the 18th and 20th week of the pregnancy, they started noticing it and what can also be said with certainty, started to look after and care about both the mother and the unborn child. And why is it so certain that Slavs actively looked after and care about future mothers and their four and a half, five months pregnancies? Because those mothers and their unborn children could, if harm came to them, turn into demons into Dziwożonas or Poroniec. And nobody wanted that, because demons are scary and they can hurt the community. Dziwożonas are Slavic demons who are quote-unquote born from the souls of women who died during pregnancy, in labor or shortly after it. Poronice are demons, again quote-unquote born, from the souls of miscarried fetuses or babies who died during or shortly after being born. Both those demons were malevolent and very dangerous, particularly for pregnant women and young mothers. For example, Porońce attacked them and sucked their blood, while Dziwożony sought to, depending on the regional folklore, either take away healthy newborns and swap them for changelings, for their own hideous and deformed children, or they wanted to hurt unfaithful wives, young women and the elderly ones as well. It's also possible that Dziwożony did both, hurting or taking away the children and hurting the grown-ups too. So, if we look at how dangerous demons could be quote-unquote born, if harm came to an obviously pregnant woman, it is certain that Slavs protected those women and looked after them with care. After all, they could not allow for a pregnant woman to miscarry, or even worse, die, and for her miscarried baby or herself not to receive a proper funeral ritual. Because without a proper funeral ritual, the dead mother or the miscarried child would turn into a demon and that in turn would be a direct threat for the whole community. What we have to remember is that it really wasn't easy or safe to be pregnant in medieval times. Even in modern times with cutting-edge diagnostic, modern medicine and medical care pregnancy does not come without risk. Currently, one of the countries of the highest maternal mortality, which is a number calculated from a number of women who die from pregnancy-related causes while pregnant or within 42 days after the end of pregnancy. So, the country of the highest maternal mortality is Sierra Leone, where 1 in 75 pregnancies end in the death of the mother. The maternal mortality was as bad or even worse in ancient or medieval times. It's no wonder then that pre-Christian Slavs did not celebrate pregnancy, which for many women was a death sentence. They only celebrated the birth of a life and healthy child. We know at least one ritual related to the birth of a child, and it's the bribing of Rodzanice. It's a ceremony which was held for several days, usually three days, but sometimes seven days, after the birth of a live child. 
Rodzanice were Slavic goddesses who were, and for the followers of Slavic native faith still are, responsible for weaving of the human fate. The purpose of the ritual of bribing Rodzanice was to ask Rodzanice to weave a strong and righteous dollar for the child that was born. A dollar is a protective spirit which every Slav has. I am planning to discuss dollar in a separate episode, hopefully next time, so for now I just, you know, say it. Dola was weaved by Rodzanice and it determined the future of the child that was born. So for now let's leave Dola and go back to the medieval pregnancies and labor. If we look at the statistical data about infant mortality, it becomes obvious that 75% of neonatal deaths happen in the first week of the newborn's life. What's really amazing is that somehow our ancestors knew that too. Why else would they bribe Rodzanice for several days after the child was born? They could have as well hold just one ritual, like for an hour or a quarter of an hour, but instead they bribed Rodzanice in a continuous several days long ritual held what's really, really awesome, in the exactly the same time when the newborn baby was at the highest risk of dying. I think it's absolutely astonishing what people can achieve and figure out if they only use their brains. It would be great if we could all use our brains more often like our ancestors did. Uh, But... Back to the Slavic soul and the question of when it developed. As it usually happens with the Slavic tradition, we don't know for sure, but we do know something. What we know is, firstly, we know that Slavs believed that the soul of a miscarried fetus can turn into a demon called a poronitz. We also know that they also believed that from a soul of a pregnant woman, another demon can rise, a demon called Dziwożona. And finally, we know that our ancestors held a days-long ritual to pray for the child's fate, so the child's dola. This ritual was held after the child was born, not before, after. Have you noticed the rule already? A demon can only develop from a fetus or a child after this fetus or child leaves the body of the mother. But when a pregnant woman dies before giving birth and proper funeral rites are not performed on her body, only one demon develops, not two, one. Also, the dola of a child is formed and prayed for after the child is born, not before. So it seems that the Slavic rule was one body, one soul. As long as the baby remains in the body of the mother, he or she did not have his or her own soul. Hence, from a pregnant woman, only one demon could raise, not two. It seems that Slavs believed that the soul of a Slav is born together with the Slav, not in the womb of a mother, but only after leaving it. So, for anyone who claims that modern Rodnovers should be pro-life because our ancestors were like that, 
I will ask you very kindly to sod off, stop lying and talking about things you haven't got the slightest clue about. The idea of prenatal life or unborn life that had a soul and required protecting, it was foreign to our ancestors. They did not think it existed. They didn't protect it other than protecting the mother and that's it. If our ancestors believed that an unborn child had a soul, there would have been two demons rising from a body of a pregnant woman, not one. As to the ultimate pro-life sin, which is abortion, our ancestors did not have a slightest clue about it either. They couldn't have because until a baby was born, they couldn't even tell for sure if a woman was pregnant. They could, in theory, cut the woman open and see what's inside, but nobody did it. Well, you know, maybe somebody did it, like a psychopath or something, but if so, they were sick. They were sick people, and our ancestors hunted them down, because the rule was not to hurt a woman with a big belly. Full stop. What is important to take out of this episode of searching for the Slavic soul is that we really should be using our brains more often. We should be using our brains to figure out that there are things that are part of a modern life but were completely unknown to our ancestors. And the pro-life, pro-choice debate is one of those things. So. Whoever tells you that Rodnoveri should be pro-life or pro-choice, just ignore them. They dumb. They don't know what they're talking about. That's all for today. I hope it wasn't too boring and that I did not offend or gross anyone out. Even those pro-life Rodnovers citing the pre-Christian Slavs as the source of their opinions, I did call you dumb because you are. So you shouldn't see me calling you dumb as offensive. I'm actually trying to be helpful here and show you your lack of knowledge and logic so you can educate yourself and start to think. So really, I'm being kind to you, helpful even when I call you dumb. So again, I hope I did not offend or gross out anyone. If I did, please forgive me. It really wasn't my intention. Unfortunately, there are things that have to be discussed and said in a direct way without wrapping things in metaphors or softening it up because, you know, that's life. It is what it is. As always, thank you for listening and please feel free to contact the Vitias team with any comments or questions you might have. You can contact us via our website, which is witi.squarespace.com or via our Facebook, Instagram or YouTube, or you can email us on witia.dabouru at gmail.com. That's witia.dabouru at gmail.com. And for now, take care, stay safe and suave. See you or rather hear you next time. Suava.